Hello and welcome to Harvest Church Podcast. Harvest Church is based in sunny Durban, South Africa. We are a family of believers who are passionate about Jesus. We really hope this message inspires you today. Good morning. It is so great to be back in the building and to see all of your beautiful faces. I have been undone by worship this morning. So, Norse, thank you. Thank you to you and your team for leading us, for ushering in the presence and just the privilege of of what you give us and what your heart carries. And I hope that you on that side of the screen are feeling as good as we are on this side. I know that there's been a delay with the recording and it's gonna go out at 10 o'clock. And I just pray that whenever people listen to this, they would feel God's presence in their cars, in their homes, as much as we have this morning. Let's pray before I start. Father, we thank you for open churches, and for open hearts. Lord, I thank you for the community and the incredible miracles that we've seen in these last couple of weeks. We thank you that you are present in confusion, that you are with us in trouble, and that we can come to you with boldness. Lord, we ask you for a miracle in our beautiful country. Give us wisdom on how you want each of us to be part of that miracle. Speak to our leaders, Lord, but most of all, speak to us. Give us insight, give us discernment, and lead us in your ways. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The topic this morning is friendships, and I'm going to spend some time unpacking a story from one of the books of wisdom, the book of Job, particularly looking at some lessons in friendships when our friends are going through troubled times. The title this morning and the play that I'm gonna have on two words is the difference between being a merciful comforter and a miserable comforter. Now, I didn't make up the term miserable comforter. It actually comes directly from the book of Job where after three cycles of conversations with these really stunning guys that came to comfort him with the very best intentions, he eventually referred to them with just absolute exasperation and called them miserable comforters. There are five books of wisdom in the Old Testament. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And the books of wisdom are intended to give us skills on how to live a godly life, a good life, a flourishing life, a life that reflects the one of Jesus. Tools, tools are just tools. Knowledge, is just a tool. The complicated thing is that it requires wisdom to be able to apply the tools effectively. Wisdom is a skill. 
for living well. Knowledge is just knowledge. We can gain knowledge by researching, reading, and memorizing facts, which is a really good idea, particularly when the Bible is our source for it. But wisdom is the ability to apply that knowledge effectively in our daily lives. Wisdom requires understanding, it requires discernment, it requires that ability to know which particular facts are necessary in this particular moment while not losing sight of all the other truths that exist in the Word. Simply put, knowledge is a tool, wisdom is the craft. The picture that I have of wisdom and knowledge together is like a juggler who skillfully handles his juggling balls in the air with synchronized practice. He doesn't lose sight of any one of them at any time, but has this big picture, peripheral vision, as he doesn't drop any of them. Wisdom requires that same type of big picture view, keeping all the facts in our peripheral vision. Now, fortunately, the Bible tells us a lot about wisdom. It helps us. It tells us what it is, and it tells us how we get it. And if you turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. It's quite simple. Who gives generously to all, and I love this next part, without finding fault, and it will be given to you. James goes on to say in James 3.17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven, suggesting that there is a difference between heavenly wisdom and other types of wisdom, and he, then he describes it for us. It is first of all pure, then it is peace-loving. It's considerate, submissive, something we don't often hear talked about anymore, as Louis mentioned last week. It is full of mercy, good fruit. It's impartial, and it is sincere. So now I'm going to ask you to hold that as a ball as I present a whole lot of juggling balls this morning and we go to the book of Job. I'm going to unpack the story and the book of Job is generally used as a reference on how to respond to suffering. I've spoken on the book of Job before exactly from this view. But the book of Job is about much more than suffering. It is an incredibly challenging story, and it's a bit of a mental roller coaster as you go through it. In fact, one author writes, it is one of the most sophisticated and mind-bending literary works in the Bible. It is a masterpiece of, hum of Hebrew poetry, and what Hebrew poetry does is it combines and repeats ideas consistently. And we'll see many ideas combined and repeated consistently in Job, but they are all held together with this incredible 
synchrony of wisdom. It is impossible to read the book of Job, and I challenge you to do it, without it challenging your heart and your mind. And it raises some very big questions. And as a disclaimer, I personally have a love-hate relationship with the book of Job, because the more I read it, the more I realize that there are no straightforward answers in this book, which is often the challenge of wisdom. It is not simple, clear-cut, polarized thinking. And Job cannot be read without allowing for the mystery of God, the bigness of God, and the holiness of God. And do yourself a favor and go to Job chapter 38 if you want to be challenged with who our God really is. The book of Job challenges formulaic thinking. It blows out the water any of our neat methodologies. If I do this, then I'm guaranteed of that happening. It challenges any vending machine theology that we might be guilty of. If I put this in, then somehow God is required to put that out. There are no one plus one equals two equations in this book, but remember, it is a book of wisdom. And instead, it tells the story of this beautiful man, Job, a righteous man, a blameless man who experiences some difficult times. And this piece of knowledge is a golden tool, a golden nugget when we are approaching friendships as merciful comforters, especially when our friends are going through difficult times. Because bad things happen to very, very, very good people. And while reading it, most of us get stuck, I know I have got stuck, on the theological debate of why. Why did, God su why did Job suffer so much? And you might have asked yourself the question as you've been through a difficult time this year. But I found it far more helpful to read the book of Job through the lens of how. How did he get through? That is the wisdom that is in this book. And what can often be, be missed in the story as we read it because of the challenging story is these beautiful lessons of friendship that are woven into the chapters, particularly when our friends are facing grief, trauma, and when their worlds are falling apart. And I'd say in the last 18 months, all of us have had a friend whose world has fallen apart. A week after the unrest, Robin and I joined the queue at the Moses Mabida Stadium for our second Pfizer vaccination. And while we were in the queue, it took us about two and a half hours, and as with queues in South Africa, they generally take a while. And there's this camaraderie that develops in the queue with this common purpose and common goal. And so we made friends with about five or six people around us, 
beautifully representing our multicultural South Africa, which was a good relief after the unrest. And as we got to the end of the queue, a, particular, a particularly young 52-year-old <laughs> told us the story of her loss. She had lost her husband on the 26th of December of last year. And she described her experience, her shock, the meaning of her loss. She described her faith to us and the God that she believed in and the way that she thinks that he works. And she began to cry. Have you ever been in those moments where you, you don't have a clue what to say or what to do? What do you say to a woman with a, a different worldview, a different understanding of God, a different approach to life, who is crying right before you're about to get your jab? Is it a time for silence? Is it a time to correct her faith with yours? Is it a time to give her the insights that maybe she needs to get her through this time? Is it a time for words to, to try and make her pain feel a little bit less? Or is it a time to forget social distancing and just put your arms around her and let her cry on your shoulder? There have been lots of these moments in the last 18 months for many of us when we haven't quite known what to say or what to do. I read a report that said on June 9th, 2021, 3.7 million people have died worldwide of COVID. Now, no matter what your view is of COVID, these 3.7 million people represent real human beings. These are real lives. These represent real families that have had great loss. 3.7 million families grieving, and even more than that, friends, who have created where, this, where there has been a gap in their lives. COVID has not only challenged our physical well-being, but it has unfortunately challenged our emotional well-being as well. I read another article last week that said that psychologists have reported higher caseloads, longer waiting lists, an influx of new clients, and a return of old clients back to therapy due to a resurgence of their symptoms. The pandemic has led to increased anxiety, depression, financial pressure, stress, and mental health issues. People are struggling, and when people are struggling, they need people. They need wise people. They need merciful comforters, which is why I'm turning to the book of Job this morning and while this, this message might feel negative and heavy, guys, this message is about us preventing some of the mistakes that Job's friends made. We have wisdom in the book of Job that we can look at and we can say, there's a tool I want to learn from and Jesus, please give me the wisdom to apply this to make a difference in people's lives. It has been long identified that good friendships have a myriad of benefits. Increased feelings of belonging, happiness, purpose, reduced levels of stress, 
increase self-confidence and self-worth. They help us through trauma. There are some studies that show that just by handing the, holding the hand of a friend, it helps you to endure more pain. And so with a global pandemic, with a loss, with a trauma, with the strain on finances, it is more necessary than ever to be able to reach out and share our loads with our friends. The problem is, there has been a parallel problem that the pandemic has brought us. There is actually a strain on our friendships and our relationships. There has been a reduction of social circles reported. There has been an aggravation of the loneliness epidemic. There's been this political polarization and polarized opinions. Have you found yourself like me, wanting to unfollow someone on Instagram that you previously respected due to their views? Have you discovered some personality differences between you and your family and your friends? A different level of risk tolerance and what, like, what might seem from one view like blind optimism on one side versus hysterical alarmism on the other. The reality is that while many people are losing sleep over someone that they love gasping for air in a crowded hospital room, others are in crowded places fulfilling their need for social interactions. And the problem is that the differences are painfully evident, and when there is difference, it leaves space for judgment. Slide number five, human beings are idiosyncratic in thinking. If your way is not my way, then it's probably the wrong way. And so the side problem is, that our friendships have been under strain. Which is why we're going to look at the book of Job this morning. A man who went through an incredibly challenging time, who had three friends that came to visit him with the very best intentions of comforting him and providing sympathy. And then at the end, he was so exasperated that he just called them miserable comforters. And my goal this morning is that each of us will learn just one thing from what they did right and from some of their mistakes. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to do a quick synopsis of the book. There are 42 chapters, and my plan is this afternoon to watch the men race in the 100-meter sprint, and so we haven't got time to read the 42 chapters, and instead, I'm just going to summarize it and point out eight very simple lessons that we can learn from the book. The story of Job goes like this. This guy is a wealthy man. He's a wonderful man. He's righteous. He's good. He's kind. He loves God, and he loves people. And in Job 1, verse 1, we've got some really useful information about this man before we hear that he loses everything. This is our first idea, our first ball to hold in the air as we go through the story of his life. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God, and he shunned evil. 
Notice here that Job is blameless. This does not mean that he is sinless. Sometimes we confuse the two. It is impossible to be sinless, as 1 John verse 1, I think it says. But blameless is a very different story. Dr. Stephen Lawson explains that sin is vertical, blameless is horizontal. In other words, slide number seven, sin is what we do, blameless is how God sees us. David Guzik, that's super good news, guys. Can you not just breathe a sigh of relief as we're on our hamster wheels trying to do so well with the best intentions and then we kind of fall flat every now and then. David Guzik, who is well known for his verse-by-verse commentary on the Bible and somebody that I go to every time I get stuck, he says this, we know that Job was not sinlessly perfect Yet God unashamedly seemed to see him that way. The modern believer stands in the same place, completely justified in Jesus Christ. As a child of God, you might not be sinless this morning, but you are blameless in God's eyes. And that is a golden nugget a golden ball to hold in the air if you go through trouble or if any of your friends go through trouble. You see, trouble is never the effect of God's punishment. If we are blameless as the children of God, punishment is not in God's story for us. Jesus said we will go through trouble. He did not say, you will be punished for what you've done. So with that in mind, we see this wonderful, blameless man, Job. And he receives four messages in one day, each bearing separate news that is livestock. I could give away livestock. That wouldn't bother me. His servants, his 10 children have all died. And we see his grief. He tears his clothes, he shaves his head, and he blesses God in his prayers, one of my favorite moments in the story. And next, he's afflicted with these horrible skin sores, and his wife encourages him to curse God, give up, and die. But Job refuses, and now is when we are gonna start honing in on some very important details of the story. And we're going to pick up the story in Job chapter 2, verse 11. And this is where these three friends come to visit him. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, hopefully not the names of any future grandchildren in this group, heard all about the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. That's how bad this guy looked. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes, they sprinkled dust on their heads, and then they sat on the ground 
with him for seven days and seven nights. No one even said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now, I think that this is a remarkable feat. I'm not sure that I could be silent for seven days and seven nights if one of my friends was in this level of pain. And it's easy to look at the end of the chapters and focus on what these guys got wrong. But I want to first of all look at what they got right because they give us incredible examples on what to do in friendship. Number one, these guys showed up. They were not too busy with their own lives or felt too awkward with showing up at Job's house. They left whatever they were doing behind and they arrived. In other words, number two, they must have been quite inconvenienced in order to show up. This is a long time, guys, and I imagine that they went quite a far way. Good friends are inconvenienced. Now, if you know me well, you'll know that I'm a firm believer in boundaries. And if you've ever spent any time in my office, the topic will have probably come up once or twice. Now, boundaries are very simple to understand. They're about knowing where you begin and end and where somebody else begins and ends. It's about your yes being your yes. You don't say yes when you actually mean no. So this is just really a simple honesty program. It's when your inside and your outsides are congruent. That's what boundaries are. But boundaries are only one ball that we hold in the air when it comes to friendships. And this concept of boundaries needs to be balanced with an incredible amount of inconvenience when your friends need you. Inconvenience is not a lack of boundaries. Inconvenience is just good friendship. We next see, number three, that he, they grieved alongside Job. I love this part. They grieved with him. This was not an, oh, shame, poor Job. I'm so glad this isn't happening to me. They actually felt with him. They had the emotional connection to feel his pain, and they literally became a mirror reflection of his. They wept, they cried out loud. Guys, these are very good friends. And they show the solidarity, empathy in action as they mirror him. And then they spend seven days alongside of him without giving any insight, any judgment, any instructions, and notice there was no advice. Slide number 13 and number four, they refrained from filling the silence. This takes an incredible amount of discipline when you see somebody hurting, but they recognize that Job wasn't ready to speak. And so they disciplined themselves and they waited until he was ready. So those are four good things to remember in grief. Show up, be inconvenienced, grieve, and refrain from having all the answers and needing to fill the silence. Because you know what? With grief, most often, we don't have a clue. And then on the seventh day, we see that the silence is broken. Job actually breaks the silence, and he begins to speak in Job chapter 3. And he pours out the depth of his grief. And like most grief, this is really messy. He he mentions these crazy thoughts and these crazy feelings that he's having, which is very normal in grief. 
And after Job's lament, <clears throat> his friend Eliphaz begins to speak, suggesting that this grief that Job shared maybe felt like a bit much for him. It is very difficult to experience and observe grief. We, we want to reach out and fix the person and take away some of their pain. And Eliphaz had a very good idea of what Job should do in order to reduce his pain. And after Job's lament, he's unsettled, Eliphaz is. Remember, they don't know what we know, that Job is blameless in God's eyes. And so instead, as these three, three friends respond, they go with this dangerous gut intuition. You ever felt that? I just have a feeling I should say this. One of them even has a vision in the night suggesting that it's spiritual intuition. They go with some limited theology with just one ball and focusing on that one. And eventually, after three cycles of conversations, Job eventually calls them miserable comforters. These really good friends who showed up were inconvenienced, grieved alongside of him and were silent, with the very best intentions, fell into some unhelpful responses. I want to show you just one passage of scripture in Job chapter 4, and it says that Eliphaz responded, if one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? but who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have taught many, you have strengthened weak hands, but now it comes to you and you are impatient. Notice the meaning that Eliphaz gives to Job's grief. He calls him impatient. It touches you and you are horrified. Another explanation of Job's grief. Remember, here comes the theology, Whoever, being, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed, according to what I have seen, those who plow wrongdoing and those who sow trouble harvest it. Guys, this is after Job's lament. He's literally taken his heart out and displayed it in front of his friends. And Eliphaz does that proverbial drop kick of the heart. He takes the heart and instead of wrapping it in cotton wool, he just drop kicks it and uses the very things that, Eli, that Job has said, he uses them against him. Instead of understanding that when we are in grief, we have crazy thoughts, crazy feelings. That's not being impatient. That's not wallowing in our pity, in our self-pity. That is just what grief looks like. And these guys, and we need to learn that if we want to be merciful comforters, we need to become more comfortable with watching people experience grief. It is difficult to see grief. It is difficult, but we need to increase our capacity to hold space for it and not to judge it. Eliphaz does what is called the fundamental attribution error in social psychology, you knew something in psych was coming into this talk. The fundamental attribution error is exactly what Eliphaz did. It's this tendency to attribute behavior 
to a character default. Job was grieving. This was a natural part of the process, but instead, instead of saying, instead of Eliphaz saying, this is a result of Job's circumstances that he's feeling and thinking this way, he said, this is because of Job's character. And we generally do that as human beings. Of course, when it comes to ourselves, the fundamental attribution error says that we give our own behavior meaning according to our circumstances. So we let ourselves off the hook, but we generally will criticize others. It's good to remember that when we want to be a merciful comforter, number six, we need to avoid criticism when people are grieving. We need to avoid criticism on the outside and especially on the inside of us because we leak what we think. Notice next that Eliphaz adds some theology. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent or when were the upright destroyed, according to what I have seen, those who plow wrongdoing will, will sow and sow trouble will harvest it. Notice this formulaic expression, the simple cause and effect. If you sow trouble, you will harvest it. But of course, we know that Job was blameless. So Eliphaz was very, very wrong. To be merciful comforters, we need to be very careful to avoid the cause and effect, simplistic, polarized reasoning. I wonder sometimes if we do this to make ourselves feel safer in some way. You know, if, if there's a one plus one equals two, and if they did that, and then they did that, and then that happened, if I don't do that, then somehow I'm gonna be safe. For example, if somebody gets hijacked, you'll often find that somebody else will say, what car were you driving, what neighborhood were you in? What we're doing there is some mental gymnastics. Ah, I don't drive that model of car. I don't live in that neighborhood, so maybe I won't be hijacked. It's just natural. This is a natural idiosyncrasies of humans. We, we want to keep ourselves safe. And so we fall into this trap of cause and effect. The problem is when we do cause and effect, it's not helpful to somebody that's in the result of trouble. We often attribute loss to some kind of fault in the person, some kind of bad decision or bad choice that they made. Guys, grief is not a time to attribute meaning that is negative because we are blameless as children of God. And if Job is a book of wisdom and if it teaches us anything, it teaches us how to respond to people when they're suffering. It teaches us that suffering is not a time to criticize and assign blame. We can see that this just adds more pain to Job's existing pain. And merciful comforters don't add on extra pain. They share the load and they take on their friend's pain. Later in the book, we'll see that Eliphaz believes that Job's agony must be due to some sin that he has committed, and he urges Job to seek God's favor. 
Which brings me to the last one. These guys could not resist the need to fix Job. Merciful comforters resist the need to fix. They know that pain and trouble is part of the process and they hold space for it and there's no race for somebody to get to the finish line and to be well at the end of the process. Grief actually lasts forever. We get used to it and we learn how to do it. But it's never taken away if you lose an important human being in your life. I wonder if we try and fix because deep down in each of us there is a healer. And this healer reaches out and wants to help people in their pain. And the, the three friends have their own version of trying to heal Job and to fix his pain. To end off, I want to go back to the beginning, to that very first ball that I asked you to hold in the air. And I want you to compare these four responses, these last ones, the discomfort with the grief, the criticism of the person in pain, the applying the cause and effect equation, and the needing to fix the person in pain, to get him out of pain as quickly as possible, to James chapter three, verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. That means it's free of any wrong motives. It is peace-loving, peaceable, which is the character and the disposition of God. It is considerate. In other words, it thinks of the impact on someone else. It is submissive, willing to yield, not believing that my opinion is the only opinion that exists at this moment in time. It is full of mercy. Mercy means we don't hold others to the letter of the law. And it has good fruit. In other words, it makes people feel better, not worse. It is impartial. It doesn't think of one higher than the other and certainly doesn't think of if this was me, this is how I would do it. And it is sincere. It matches inside and outside. Let's pray. Lord, we need wisdom. Father, I pray like Job said, open our ears to hear you and let our eyes see you. Father, strengthen our connections as we wobble through this time. Help us be a church that shows up, that grieves alongside, that holds space for pain. And Father, let us become the merciful comforters that you intended us to be. Let us reflect your character so that we will be a place of healing as we muddle through. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.